What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Time is running out for the long line of people jockeying to get an 11th hour pardon from President Trump. And one of the names at the top of his pardon list may be his own. I'm not above the law. I never want anybody to be above the law. But the pardons are a very positive thing for a president. I think you see the way I'm using them. And yes, I do have an absolute right to pardon myself. According to Bloomberg sources, Trump has prepared a sweeping list of people he's hoping to pardon on his last full day in office, including family members, senior White House officials, some famous rappers, and perhaps himself. Although most legal experts say a president cannot pardon himself. Trump's unpredictability, his willingness to do favors for friends and to champion causes promoted by conservative media has created a sort of lobbying bonanza for all types of people. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. David, historically the pardon process has run out of the pardon attorney's office in the Justice Department. Has Trump completely cut the pardon office out of the process? Not completely, but we're talking about a small handful of cases out of the almost 100 pardons and commutations that Trump has issued. You know, in effect, he's doing his own thing. The Justice Department process is still plugging along, but it's sort of a sideshow compared to the kind of lobbying bonanza focused on the White House that's really dictating who gets clemency this time around. So who's jockeying for pardons from Trump? So it's a variety of people. I mean, you've got kind of politically connected associates of Trump. You've got people whose cases have become kind of a cause celeb on the right, like Blackwater officials who were pardoned as part of the latest round of clemency grants. And then you've also got sort of more run-of-the-mill white-collar prisoners who are trying to kind of move the levers of power in, in ways that help them get the president's attention by, you know, talking to conservative media, getting influential lobbyists to advocate for them with officials at the White House. That's basically the range of people who are kind of jockeying. I mean, there's also, of course, talk that Trump could issue preemptive pardons to family members like his daughter Ivanka or his son-in-law Jared Kushner to protect them from potential future charges or even to issue a self-pardon that would shield him from federal charges once he leaves office. It seems like the pardon process is almost an industry, you know, pardon lawyers, lobbyists. It is. I mean, there are lawyers whose main practice is to help people navigate the clemency process. There's a whole network of nonprofit groups, a lot of which do really important work, sort of exploring the cases of people who have faced really severe sentences for kind of minor drug crimes and trying to use the clemency process as a way to reduce the number of people who are incarcerated for those sorts of minor nonviolent crimes. So there's a whole kind of ecosystem around this, and usually it's been directed at the Justice Department and, you know, producing compelling clemency petitions that kind of go through that vetting process. But now there's there's been a shift where these nonprofit groups and lobbyists and lawyers have had to kind of focus their energies on sort of less conventional ways to get the White House's attention. 
you spoke to a lawyer, Margaret Love, who said, there's no doubt a great deal of opportunity in the dysfunction. Explain what she meant. So what she's saying is that for people who have the time and the resources to do the sort of lobbying that I've been describing, to talk to conservative radio hosts, to write petitions to Republican legislators and try to get them to put in a good word with the White House, people have the time and resources to do that may be in a good position to get clemency. Now, it's worth pointing out that Trump has issued many fewer pardons and commutations than Obama did. It's not as if he's being especially lenient. It's just that there's this new kind of avenue to pursue clemency that hasn't existed in quite the same way before that's now open to people with political connections and the means to capitalize on those connections. Just to give us some flavor of how these lobbying campaigns go, tell us the story of Hershey Martin. Sure. So Hershey Martin's a 26-year-old in Brooklyn. He runs a kind of small home care agency, and he's the nephew of a man named Sholem Weiss, who is a New York businessman who was sentenced to more than 800 years in prison in the early 2000s for money laundering and other crimes related to an insurance scheme. So he's a white-collar prisoner with a lot of resources, the ability to hire lobbyists on his behalf. And Hershey, his nephew, has also been working pretty vigorously behind the scenes to try to secure clemency for his uncle. So he's got a website with endorsements from Alan Dershowitz, who's obviously a very politically connected figure in Trump's circle. He's been reaching out to state legislators to try to get them to write letters to the White House. You know, he's been plastering Twitter with kind of messages directed at at Trump to try to get his attention or to try to get some pickup in conservative media that might cross Trump's desk. So it's really kind of a full court press by Weiss's family to do anything they can that might improve his chances of getting clemency. Now, of course, the chances that they succeed are ultimately slim, but this avenue of lobbying exists where it may not have existed under previous presidents. How much does conservative media play a part? Because in some of the cases, I remember the Navy SEAL, there was a a big push on conservative media for him to get a pardon. Yeah, I mean, there are certainly examples of, of sort of politically sensitive cases that Trump has intervened in that were kind of promoted by conservative media over over the years. And you know, it's sometimes hard to draw a direct line. You know, Trump saw this segment on a news show and then immediately issued a pardon. I don't know that we can draw that direct connection, but the fact that these names are floating around in conservative circles has a lot to do with the type of type of media attention that some of these cases have gotten. And you mentioned that Barack Obama tried a new pardon process. That process was also criticized because of the many layers of review so it's important to remember here that Trump hasn't come in and kind of upended a system that was like whirring along productively before he re- arrived. There were all sorts of problems with the kind of traditional Justice Department process for clemency. Um, there was a huge backlog of thousands of clemency petitions that hadn't been reviewed before Trump came into office. And that backlog has, has grown, but it existed before. Um, the, the Obama administration um, established something called the Clemency Initiative, um, the, the goal of the effort was to grant commutations to as many as 10,000 federal inmates, mostly people who'd committed nonviolent drug crime, and to reduce the incarcerated population through this kind of mass effort. But as the NYU report documents, it was hindered by bureaucracy, basically. 
you know, there would be six or seven levels of review, both within the Justice Department and at the White House. The pardon attorney under Obama, Deborah Leff, actually resigned in protest because recommendations from her office were being blocked by the deputy attorney general before they ever reached the White House. And what we ended up with was around 2,000 commutations, which in some ways was a big triumph. It was a huge number that kind of dwarfed you know, previous totals under past presidents, but it was well short of that kind of 10,000 goal. And a lot of criminal justice reform advocates felt that ultimately the process was a, was a disappointment. Is there any sort of model for what they would see as a fair process? There's actually a, a lot of interesting disagreement among reform advocates about what an improved pardon process would, would look like. Ironically, some people think that a system not that different from what Trump has instituted might be the way to go. That is, a some kind of commission that exists outside the Justice Department to evaluate these petitions, maybe even an internal White House group that would that would evaluate clemency petitions. Now, those reform advocates want this to be a kind of standard process with right criteria rather than just an opportunity for people to, to aggressively lobby the president. Um, but structurally, that idea actually isn't too far afield from what Trump has been doing. Um, the other the other proposal that's, that's gotten some traction, in which especially former pardon, pardon attorneys um, are, are behind, is simply to empower the office of the pardon attorney within the Justice Department so that it can make clemency recommendations directly to the White House and doesn't have to go through that layer of review by higher-ups in the Justice Department, which can slow things down and also lead to kind of recommendations that have been vetted by the pardon attorney getting blocked for, for whatever reason. So that idea is more just remove this layer of bureaucracy that has slowed the process in the past. Harvard Law professor Jack Goldsmith has studied Trump's pardons and found that almost 86 percent had some personal connection or political advantage. How unusual is that? Because we know that in the past, many presidents have made these kinds of pardons. For example, President Bill Clinton and financier Mark Rich and President George H.W. Bush and the Iran-Contra pardons. I don't know of similarly comprehensive studies that have been done for past administrations, partly because the instances you're describing, like Mark Rich, were sort of aberrations rather than kind of examples of how the administration was generally doing things on the clemency front. With Trump, there's been such kind of rampant abuse of the process, a lot of people would argue, that that kind of necessitates the type of rigorous study and and oversight that Goldsmith and and others have directed at the pardon process under Trump. Certainly, the sense I have is that, yes, there have been cases in the past where people successfully lobbied to get pardons or commutations or where a president sort of did a favor for a friend. And there's nothing to prevent that legally, but those were the exception rather than the rule. And under Trump, it's the rule. Now, according to Bloomberg sources, the president's daughter, Ivanka Trump, her husband, Jared Kushner, and his personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are under consideration for preemptive pardons, as are several top White House officials, including Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Senior Advisor Stephen Miller. Is there any problem with issuing a pardon when you don't know what the charge might be? There's a whole legal debate about how specific a pardon has to be for it to protect somebody. I mean, are you allowed to say, you know, any crime that this person is ever charged with is invalid? You know, you can't quite do that. You can't protect somebody from 
being charged for something that they might do in the future. But in the past, presidents have written fairly broadly worded pardons protecting people from charges for things that they might have done over a long period of time. The most famous example is Ford's pardon of Nixon, which was a preemptive pardon because Nixon hadn't been charged with anything, and which was fairly broadly worded to cover any crimes that he may have committed while president. That pardon was never challenged. You know, Nixon was never charged with anything. So the legality of a preemptive pardon hasn't actually been tested in the court. In theory, Trump could issue a preemptive pardon, you know, protecting Jared Kushner and federal prosecutors could decide to charge him anyway. And then you'd get into a situation where the courts would have to weigh in on the validity of the pardon. And obviously, a lot would depend on the particular circumstances of the case, the nature of the charges, how specific the language in the pardon was. But you might also get a court to kind of weigh in on this concept of a preemptive pardon. So that's one way this could potentially play out. But more likely is that federal prosecutors would probably not want to challenge a preemptive pardon of someone in the president's family just because it would be legally complex. The chances of success would be pretty slim. In the decades since Nixon was pardoned, it's basically become a kind of standard understanding that this type of preemptive pardon is possible. Not so for a presidential self-pardon. Not so for presidential self-pardon. That would be a truly unprecedented action by the president. And again, there are different schools of thought in the legal community about whether this is something the Constitution gives the president the ability to do. There's nothing explicit in the Constitution that says he can't do this. Various scholars have latched on to the wording of different parts of the Constitution to argue one way or the other, yes, it's allowed or no, it's not allowed. But the only way this would actually get tested is if Trump pardoned himself and then federal prosecutors charged him with a crime that appeared to be covered by the pardon, and he invoked the pardon in his defense, and then the courts would have to decide it would inevitably go all the way to the Supreme Court, and then we would get some sort of answer about whether the president can actually pardon himself. I think that's pretty unlikely. It's not clear that Trump will do a self-pardon, and, and if he does, I think it's fairly unlikely that he gets charged federally. So in all likelihood, we probably won't know the answer to that question anytime soon of whether a presidential self-pardon is within legal bounds. David, do we know how many petitions are pending for pardon now that he has to choose from? Yeah, there are about 14,000 petitions pending. But, you know, these aren't petitions that Trump is likely to just kind of wade into the pool and pick one out. I mean, these are petitions that have been submitted to Justice Department that the pardon office hasn't yet reviewed. In theory, Trump could kind of pluck one out. But most likely, you know, these people, many of whom have compelling cases for why they deserve clemency, are not going to get a hearing. And the president is never going to know about them. And that's one of the tragedies of this process and the way it's been distorted under Trump. Like, yes, you have certain white collar prisoners who now have like new opportunities and avenues to kind of lobby for clemency, but a huge number of people who don't have money, who aren't politically connected, now have basically no way to get clemency through this, this process because the Justice Department's been sidelined. Thanks, David. That's Bloomberg legal reporter David Yaffe Bellany. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor Data Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio. For Attorney General of the United States, I nominate a man of impeccable integrity, 
Judge Merrick Garland, one of the most respected jurists of our time. President-elect Joe Biden named Judge Merrick Garland to be the nation's top law enforcement officer at a critical time in our history. After the seat of the nation's democracy has been attacked by rioters, after a year of protests against systemic racism, and after four years of the politicization of the Justice Department, Garland pledged to restore independence to the Justice Department. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. Garland has been a highly respected judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals for more than two decades, the judge who the Republicans refused a hearing on his nomination to the Supreme Court. Joining me is David Posen, a professor at Columbia Law School who clerked for Garland. So is Garland a good choice for attorney general? I think he's an excellent choice. If anyone is going to restore public confidence in the institution, I would think it would be someone respected across the aisle, like Judge Garland, who's also had a long history with the department and is well-known and revered by many in the building. He has a reputation as a centrist, and some progressives say his decisions leaned in favor of the government and law enforcement. Is this the time for a centrist as attorney general? I think his centrism, to some extent, was a function of his job as a judge. As a judge, he was a minimalist. He really didn't want to issue broad, aggressive rulings. And he saw it as his job as a judge to stick to the letter of the law closely. In the Justice Department, I think he will likewise bring the same integrity and legal care. But the key statutes that he's charged with enforcing really envision a robust Justice Department role that has withered in in recent years. So I'm thinking of areas like civil rights and voting rights where enforcement has been negligible. I think it's entirely consistent with being a by-the-books legalist to aggressively enforce laws in those areas and thereby, you know, kind of reclaim some of the progressive ambitions of, of the department. Although he was a careful and minimalist judge, I don't think Judge Garland's commitment to voting rights or civil rights has ever been in doubt. And as attorney general, he will be charged with enforcing quite broad statutes still in the books from the civil rights era in both of those areas. And I think it will therefore be entirely consistent with his commitment to rule of law and kind of careful legal craft to be a bold attorney general in the civil rights and voting rights areas. The Justice Department, as you referred to, has been under a kind of assault from within the last four years, and morale is low. Can he repair the damage? I'm sure there are many small moves to be made within different units of DOJ to right the ship. But at a high level of generality, I think he can lead by example. He's very committed to process norms. He's a real institutionalist. And he knows deeply the longstanding norms of the Justice Department, including ones involving insulation from White House control to ones about how to conduct a proper investigation to norms about how to pursue enforcement of voting rights laws. In short, Attorney General Garland will be a consummate professional and institutionalist in the way he pursues everything he does at DOJ. He will see it as a key part of his task rebuilding not just the morale, but the norms of the institution that have long structured how the Justice Department understands itself, ensures its independence, and the integrity 
and professionalism of its work. And he embodied those kinds of legal process values as a judge, and he'll do the same as attorney general. A lot of that work won't necessarily be visible to the outside world, which will focus on enforcement actions he brings, lawsuits in which the Justice Department plays a role. But I expect him to be doing crucial work inside the building in ways that will just make the department more effective in the future. One of the big questions is whether or not the Justice Department will move forward with prosecuting President Trump. In light of the riots yesterday, that question seems even more important to answer. I really don't know and can't predict. All I can say is that Judge Garland cut his teeth as a prosecutor in part in the area of domestic terrorism, which is sadly relevant again. He famously led the investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing that led to Timothy McVeigh's arrest and conviction. So he does have experience in that area to the extent it's relevant here. As for President Trump himself, all I can say with confidence is that as Attorney General, Judge Garland would want to make sure that he did everything by the book. And so he would not want to do anything that could be perceived as political in in the way he decides whether to and how to investigate President Trump who would be assigned to that work, how they would be insulated from White House control. He would be, you know, the consummate nonpartisan professional. That's all I can say with confidence. There's been some speculation that one, just one of the reasons why Biden may have chosen him is because of the pending Hunter Biden investigation and wanting a non-political type to be handling that. That could be. I mean, I, I think I think more broadly, um, the Justice Department has been thoroughly politicized and delegitimated in recent years. And um, it's not just any specific investigation, but the you know entire project of restoring public trust in in the Justice Department, which is which is you know going to be crucial um, for the country's well-being on, on all sorts of matters, um, depends on there being a leader who um, is not you know fairly, attacked on partisan grounds. Whatever one could say about Judge Garland, um, it cannot be said that he's ever operated in in a partisan manner. Even on the D.C. Circuit, a highly contentious appellate court, um, he had the utmost respect from Chief Justice Roberts, Justice Kavanaugh, other conservative colleagues throughout his time there. So if the Justice Department doesn't recover from the hit it's taken to its reputation, over these last four years, it will not be because of Attorney General Garland. If anyone has a chance of restoring integrity to that, to you know, once great institution in a hyperpolarized time, it would be Garland. On a personal note, you clerked for him. What was it like to work with him? He was a wonderful boss, very self-sufficient as a judge. One had the sense he didn't really need clerks, but he was exquisitely careful in his approach to every case. And just two little points that may speak to how he'll be as attorney general. One is that even though we had a small chambers, just four clerks, and everything that was said in chambers was confidential among us, still, Judge Garland had a rule that you could not talk politics around him. He just did not want to be in any way a part of something that could be perceived as political. So that he was doing that in chambers, I think, really speaks to the kind of staunch legalist he is 
And second, I had the sense that even though he was a great judge and very dedicated to that position, his heart was really still at DOJ. He really lit up when asked about his time at the Justice Department. He spoke with great reverence and real warmth for his former colleagues there and the work they did together. So I'm not surprised and I'm quite happy for him that at this stage in his career, he's going to have the chance to be attorney general because I always had the sense that his true professional passion lay at the Justice Department. Thanks for being on the show, David. That's David Posen, a professor at Columbia Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And please listen to the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.